Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. to front three this week with two but it's fine don't worry the, the guys will still be around uh, Boltwood is away obviously uh, Statman Davis st- also away uh, Morella is also away but we've got three great subjects for you guys joining me uh, Chris Hennage good to have you Chris good to be here it's been a while since I've been on the podcast but suddenly I burst out of nowhere sheer silence um, I'm enjoying I know this isn't one of the three subjects but this week I bought an Apple HomePod um, oh wow! And I'm enjoying Thanks, it. I have man. to. I'm enjoying it. I have to whisper this, but I'm enjoying it saying, "Hey, mm-hmm," and then uh, play mm-hmm, podcast, and uh, it just plays it. And this week, I got in and said, "Hey, mm-hmm, play the front three podcast," and it did it, and I was really impressed. Um, just, just saying. I like it. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, anyway, uh, what have you been? What have you been watching this weekend? There's been a lot on. Obviously, we just finished the uh, the Man City game, which is good. Uh, it obviously was an interesting match because Wigan won on Monday night, one nil against Man City. Chris Wilgrig is not actually on fire, um, but he scored in the game, and uh, Pep Guardiola crashes out with ten men. And as they were saying on the coverage, uh, presumptively, I'd say, because they're not close to, I'd say, two others of these trophies. This takes the quadruple off the cards. It does. And I think you can sense the frustration in Guardiola just listening to his post-match comments. Um, He said, congratulations to Wigan for qualification. They had one shot on target, which is not incorrect. I mean, you look at the statistics and again, it's a, a Man City defeat where you would argue they had just as as much, if not more, of the game than than their opposition. Um, I think it was like fifteen corners to to zero, in fact. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a bad result for them, and it's it's one of those results. I think it's very easy to cling towards the refereeing decision to send Fabian Delphi. Was it? Uh, what, was the referee? It looked like he originally reached for the yellow. He wrote his card. The yellow that he wrote was on the card, and then he showed the red. Yeah, there, there was certainly some uh, confusion in that moment. And I think if there's one thing I notice about the modern football fan, it's that a conspiracy theory makes for great company in those moments. I, I think he, he changed his mind in the moment, which, in fairness, as a referee, he's entitled to do. I did think it was a reckless challenge. Uh, I did think that that Fabian Delph, more than anything, made a needless decision. I don't think he had to do that. That's that's one of the um, the things that I took away watching it back. And of course, you know, I admit that that's steeped in hindsight, which you know is something he couldn't benefit from. And I, I think that at the same time, it's it's a little bit disingenuous to Wigan to say that the only reason they won is because of that red card because actually I think they produced a performance that for good periods of the first half was was better than some of the Premier League outfits that have come up against Man City because they engaged them and they went at them and I'm starting to to personally believe the more that we watch um, Man City particularly in the games where 
it's not a whitewash where it's not like Basel. That if you do engage them, it, it does seem to unsettle them a bit. I don't think they're as, as harmonious and fluid when engaged as, as we've been led to believe. And I think even that Basel game, I watched that Basel game, and there were one or two decent chances Basel carved out with balls over the top in the early period that had Oberlin or you know someone else had a bit more composure to them. I think it could cause City problems. Yeah, that was part of it, wasn't it? Is that actually it seems like there has been a small blueprint which has been put together on how to beat City. Um, and I think a few people have drawn on that, obviously. Uh, the the difference in, not quality of the team, but the difference in the way that they execute uh, that game plan certainly impacts how effective it is. Now, I, I don't think that every team can go as far as, say, a, a Liverpool go in the way that they execute because fitness and um, also, you know, just, just what resources you have. Obviously, Wigan played a very different game plan to the way that Liverpool played, um, but certainly exploited the same areas um, or tried to exploit the same areas despite the one shot on target um, and, you know, tried to play against a side that they were clearly tactically probably uh, not without sounding too disparaging, but inferior to. Um, but Chris, one thing that popped out to us and one thing we want to discuss, and obviously uh, also at the end of the game, what I did love was that Wigan also played Oasis uh, at, in the stadium mm-hmm. uh, just to really rub it in. Yeah, it's uh, you need a bit of needle in these kind of things. In fairness, there was a bit of needle at half-time as well. Between, yeah, what uh, was that? Cook and, and Pep Guardiola. I, th- I think it was just a disagreement that... Um, that was uh, inflamed by the closed quarters of, of a football tunnel, personally. Yes, I mean, I, I, I do. It is there's sort of a raw aggression um, about that, though, isn't there? The reason I think that's that's the 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 curious outcome is that you see it, particularly from from the position of Pep Guardiola, you see such. Uh, a contrast of interpretations in in terms of for people who admire what they perceive as a winner's mentality in him, they think that that's that trait coming to the fore and, and really bursting through the surface. Whereas to critics of him, it's a petulance. It's a you know a, a, a sort of an entitlement moment in, in which he lacks human. Yeah, uh, that's a perfect word for it. Thank you. An entitlement that you know even the the red card decision I, no sooner had that red card been brandished you saw people throwing the 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 need to protect players courts and lines back at Guardiola and I, and I do I think there is a certain for as much appreciation as there is of what he brings to the league and what he produces I think there are just as many critics of him really hoping that he does fail and and sensing or feeling there is an air of pomposity to the way that he carries himself and, and what he tries to do and that actually what he has achieved or what he will achieve, because I think he will win the Premier League, the, the rest, of course, with the Champions League and the League Cup is up for grabs, uh, has been done not because of some you know unwritten law that he, he is only able to command, but it's been done because he's had a frightening amount of, of money to spend, which I can understand. But as I said to someone recently, you know, it's it's all well and good, but that's what Guardiola does. He operates at the top end of the scale. You wouldn't ask Elton John to play a Casio keyboard by the same uh, token. Although I'm sure that if he, the, the difference with Elton John is if Elton John did play a Casio keyboard, it would sound uh, incredible. Yeah, think what he could do with that demo button. Uh, it's funny you say that actually I'm fantastic on a demo button but the rest of the Casio keyboard is uh, somewhat um, uh, a mystery to me um, however it worked once at a and no joke uh, a wake of a funeral uh, so uh, that's the story for another time um, of course Chris one thing that has been in the headlines has been about how Guardiola lets his teams manage the game and what was quite interesting is um the different formations that City were playing. I think at one point they, they switched to a diamond in midfield out of a four-five-one, and that they cycled through a couple of different formations, you know, not in the way you went on FIFA, but, you know, in the sense that it, it seemed they were making tactical decisions themselves. It sort of reminded me a few weeks ago, Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA, 
um, was very much lauded for the way that he managed his team. And let, I think it was Andre Iguodala um, give one of the play um, speeches and sort of, you know, t- tell the players the play they want to play or tactically begin to manage things. And a lot of people were uh, outraged outside of the NBA because they said, well, this is something that's so common all the time in sports. It's something that's common in most other coaches' playbooks. But because uh, Steve Kerr or maybe Pep Rodeo, all of these kind of guys are held up as tactical geniuses or people who coach exceptionally well is not something that we always acknowledge um and you know other coaches do it much less obviously and for instance i, I was a bit annoyed i had a conversation earlier this week i can't remember who it's with but someone was saying um ah, oh, you know it's it's fantastic because we get to um we we get to see Pep Guardiola coaching now, and he's such a hands-on coach. You don't get that with Rafa Benitez. You don't get that with Conte. And I thought mm. we've kind we have had that with Rafa. I mean, co- players have been very um, influenced by the coaching of the likes of Conte and the likes of Rafa Benitez. It's just that we don't see that one piece of footage where mm-hmm. you know he's being this inspirational character. And I, I, I guess it's sort of uh, first of all, I think there's one part of that which is. Uh, Man City managing their own game, which we will also come on to Chelsea and Tottenham later on, but Man City managing their own game. Uh, That Mm -hmm. seems like something which, uh, I mean, maybe not uh, always formationally, but there are definitely more teams than Man City in the Premier League, Chris, who make independent decisions. I I think, yeah, of course. Um, I find it interesting uh, at the same time that Raheem Sterling, the the player that was involved in that clip was quite eager to play it down in terms of its influence. Whereas, yeah, it's not as good as you say. I think if it, I, I, I think if it was this eureka moment from you, you think he would want to kind of point to that and say, actually, yeah, you know that 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 adaptation of the way that I run or the way I approach the ball really did make me a better player, or it did help me, or it did allow me for the first time to to see the detail of the situation. Yeah. But I, I think one thing that strikes me about football right now is that it does seem a, a little bit more tribal than it's been before. And and not necessarily in relation just to clubs anymore, but to also individuals. It, it, it seems to draw more people towards what they want to see. Um, and, and I think there are a lot more iconoclasts in, in the game now who believe that you have to be this all-seeing, all-knowing type. And I think that, that Guardiola is seen as the figurehead of that. Um, not to say that he is one of those people, but I think that there's a, a certain esteem as if, uh, to reference what I said before, as if he has some unwritten rules that, that his uh, contemporaries simply don't and that to work with him is to work with the best and all no ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah, certainly is that certainly is very interesting. Um, I mean, in terms of other managers who manage uh, games, do you know of any other examples? Because I mean, there there's certainly are. I mean, Rafa Benitez uh, certainly relied on a lot of uh, captains out on the pitch. I think you can definitely tell that um, Allegri has certain people out on the pitch who uh, are in his mould, if you like. Um, mm. I, I, think, I think ultimately what that comes down to is, is are you defining it purely as a, as a Roy Keane type character who's going to you know, grab, grab necks and things like that? Or is it, say, Marcello Lippi who yeah. favoured quite tactically intelligent players? And I think you look at and I, and I did look at this, that that, that Lippi, not side necessarily, but that period of his at Juventus during the, the 90s, there was a number of coaches sprang out from that. Antonio Conte, Zinedine Zidane, uh, Didier Deschamps, coaches that didn't uh, grade to the top level, um, who you know had little spells down the Italian pyramid. But I think that undeniably as a consequence of players that, that could think on the field. And I think you look at how pragmatic Lippi's side was. You look at the, their Champions League win against Van Hal's Ajax. To me, that was a team that, that studied their opponents in Ajax, 
knew what the limitations of the Van Hal system were, that it was a little bit rigid, that it didn't really always allow for creativity and freedom. And they played on that. And and I think in, in some cases, let's take Conte, for example. I appreciate he's not perhaps at the peak of his powers this season. But there was someone who not only had a tactical understanding of what his teammates were going through, what their struggles and strengths and, and difficulties were, but had a real strong sense of self-awareness about who he was on the football field and what his role was. Because I'm sure we've probably all played with that one player who thinks that they can hit that 60-yard ball that they've never hit before and who needlessly overcomplicates things. And I think it's it's very easy to be that piano player, but it's harder to accept maybe that you are that piano carrier. And, and we're seeing a change with that now, I think, because we're trying to produce players that are more well-rounded, who in theory can do both jobs if needs be, um, to a certain degree. I mean, you look at ball-playing centre-backs, etc. And I think that's that for me is is something that I notice now when I see coaching more and more is that just look at Ostersons, for example. They're not trying to just build footballers. They're trying to build people. They're trying to build individuals. And I think that's that, to me at least, from my experience, is a very Scandinavian way to look at development because it was Ronnie Dyler who said that exact phrase, I'm not building players, I'm building human beings. Now, he didn't have a cultural community in the same way that Ostersons had. But I think he had a focus on allowing players to problem solve themselves, which I think goes back to what you said about Steve Kerr. Uh, allowing players to, when the opportunity presents itself, maybe you can't get a message out there for whatever reason, but having a group who can react in the moment based off their own experiences and based off their own problem solving ability more than anything. Yeah, it certainly is also about, uh, I guess, when people speak about intelligence or those. So it, it sort of came up a few years ago that Liverpool as a team, and I'm talking about Liverpool quite a lot back here, but Liverpool as a team didn't have any game managers. And that, that was very much a reference to the game management and the game intelligence, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you can, can see a number of teams. It's often something you see associated with, um, with younger teams that that willingness to to just put put the ball out, sit with it in the corner, those kind of it, to me things like that are associated with experience. They're exposed associated with with wiliness almost um, because you've been presented that situation before. And I think that for me at least, it, I, I look at someone, and I'm certainly not uh, denigrating his ability as a coach. I look at someone like Tony Pulis who very much micromanages his players and marshals them and constantly gives them a, a feedback loop so that they know what they should be doing, where they should be, etc., etc. That works for him. But then, for argument's sake, say he was in an incredibly loud Turkish ground and he can't get a message to his left winger. How does that then change the, the dynamic of his team and the way that they perform? And I, th- and I think that's why... I don't think it's a new invention that we look at, at teaching players how to to think for themselves because I think you can go back to Cruyff and people like that and, and find those those same sprouts of idea and invention. I just think that we are less accepting of a coach that is not willing to embrace the what we perceive as the modernity of coaching and, and a way in which you're not just working on making them a better crosser, a better shooter, a, a better header of the ball. You're making someone that actually can operate almost without you, which might sound like the turkey voting for Christmas, but I think actually it's it's the very opposite. I think it, it allows you to to fulfil your potential as a team much much better than if you just led them by the hand through, through every scenario. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying there. I mean... Uh, it's yeah, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because then there's also coaches who I guess it's there's different kinds of trust as well. It's that Mourinho um, gets to gives his players very rigid instructions, but at the same time, that uh, he sort of trusts that they can then go out and do that because it, it's not because. Also, I mean, you look at the Pogba position. You look at where people uh, say he should be able to play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, 
uh, you know, I've, I, you, I, you know think, what I'm saying. I think you make a, yeah, I think you make a really good point there about about trust, and and I I do have to relate it back to, to Rafa Benitez just for a second because I think that's the the one I know most in depth is that you look at the scenario with uh, Hozalu and Alexander Mitrovic. Mitrovic, while younger, has arguably a better pedigree. I would argue is probably a better player, better finisher, etc. Um, but what you get with Hozalu, while not maybe a goal threat, while not always the most technical of players, even with the basics, you get someone that is willing to follow instruction and is willing to do what is told, which is close down the fullback, essentially run more than pass, <laughs> which not a lot of forwards, I imagine, want to do. And I think that was something I found very interesting when listening to to Benita speak on the Times podcast recently, is that every decision is, is almost agonised over by fans. And I am paraphrasing very heavily here, so I would urge you to go and listen to it just to hear the man speak for himself on this. But essentially, he argued that there are so many other small, minute details that go around a decision that it doesn't stress him out that you know he he's being questioned or things like that. But it's that idea of, well, this doesn't work because in the case of Mitrovic, he wasn't doing the defensive side that they needed for the team. And so at that point, he becomes a passenger. And while it may seem uh, bordering on, you know, uh, salacious to say, that in itself crumbles the entire team. Because for them, it is very much about the fact that they don't have a wealth of quality. They have sprinkles of it, but not enough that they can carry a forward. Least of all, one that's not getting, I would say, upwards of 15 goals. If he is, that's a slightly different situation. And I think that explains almost why for Mitrovic this season, prior to going on loan to Fulham, you saw him in these sort of closer cameo type roles when the game looked almost lost. The West Brom game was a good example where they call it back to 2-2. He was thrown on because, as it stands, they're losing the game. So the current plan is not working. And I, and I think that is, is something that you will possibly see improve now with time is players being willing to almost put their own egos aside. There are clearly those who, who won't. Um, and you could argue that Benteke stealing the penalty for Palace a couple of weeks ago was a good example of that. A player who put himself above the team. But I think given the, almost the ferocious nature of the relegation battle this season, I think more and more teams, more and more players will not really care about themselves anymore. They'll just care about making sure the team succeeds. Yeah, it certainly is interesting. I mean, that transitions us quite neatly onto Chelsea, actually, in the way that they've been playing this season. Uh, times when we've not seen the aggression, maybe, that we needed from Chelsea. We've not seen them embodying and managing the game in the way that you'd think that um, they should under Conte. Um, and obviously, Chris, more recently, memories for Conte have been brought up of... And I, I don't know why this isn't being covered more on sort of mainstream media, but when we made the Conte doc a while ago now with TFR, uh, still sort of holds a lot of what I think is shaping him now as a manager about the memories from Italy, those painful memories where he was seen as somewhat of a figure of fun and somewhat of a guy who took himself a little too seriously. Um, and... Uh, you know, this guy who, you know, wore a cat on his head because he, he had a hair transplant, even though, you know, something that seems very common now in a, in a lot of men of his age. Um, and how he, he was basically just seen as this guy who uh, maybe was, he's that kind of guy in school who takes himself just a little bit too seriously, takes his studies just a little bit too seriously. And it seems like it's haunting him a little bit right now because, you know, there was that Italian guy the other day who came into the press conference with, I assume he was Italian, came into the press conference with the Mourinho shit and presented it to Conte. Conte didn't seem impressed at all, but you'd imagine that he took that back to Italy almost triumphant. And it's almost if people are reveling somewhat in the idea they could bring Conte down. And so there's an almost disappointment, mm. there's an almost schadenfreude disappointment uh, sometimes when you then see him uh, pumping another team. Uh, especially when it comes to them sort of winning, I think it was 4 0 against Hull on Friday night, uh, William getting two, Pedro getting one, and then Giroud. The game was done by the end of the first half. Mm -hmm. 
what do you think about? I mean, what do you think? You've, you've obviously looked quite a lot into Conte. What do you think about his history? Because I was very interested when Mina Rizuki was talking about this with us, how she, he wasn't seen as fitting in with the club. He wasn't seen as all these sort of things. And she sort of, it was almost uh, prophetic in a way because she sort of warned that this sort of thing would happen with Conte. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mm -hmm. I I think think you look at the intensity of the man, first and foremost, and and how sustainable that is as an approach. Um, I think, as we've discussed more so with Pochettino I remember remarking to you that, that very much the case that everything that came before shaped the man that stands before you today and I think in the case of, of Conte his playing career the fact that he himself admits as as James Horncastle said in that piece that he wasn't you know predestined to, to, to be a football player that he had to work hard that he had to do this I think that that breeds a professionalism but I think, as with any strength, it's always so close to tipping into the, the realm of weakness if it's too much. Too much professionalism can be seen as taking yourself too seriously to the point where you know it's, it's said his Chelsea players don't, at, at this precise moment, appreciate the, the heavy tactic sessions that they're forced to do, the running until you get sick. You know, the, the, the stories that once seemed very... Um, smart and cunning, you know, such as, as shaming Buffon in front of the Juventus squad. Now you think, well, yeah, is that him taking himself too seriously? And I think this is one well, of the... But, but the, the... I guess the interesting side of it was that Buffon bought into that. Because Buffon uh, said, looking back, I, I I knew what was going on there. Now maybe he's trying to obviously save a little bit of face, I don't know, maybe uh, trying to make the story his own. But he said he knew about that. Did he... Uh, I don't is whether you believe it or not, but also uh, you know, did in that moment is it important that the players, even if no one else takes Conte seriously, buy into the idea that they can take Conte seriously, and that's slightly why Conte picks the teams that he does because he needs to pick those teams. He needs to pick guys who are loyal to him and aren't going to go out and read the press and think, God, this guy's a bit of a loser, or I don't believe in it because. It is very easy to have your mind changed against an ideology. You know, it's, whether, whether you voted for the party who's in power or not, there are going to be times when you doubt your leader. Yeah, I, I, I think... Um, Especially when it's Brexit. I, I think that's perhaps one of the interesting contrasts of Conte is that tactically, he is very adaptable. Um, you know, you look back to that period at Juventus, which is is the main period of his career at this stage, and it was him trying to force the four two four onto Juventus that didn't work, to the point where he said, actually, you know what, I need to be the tailor, I need to make the clothes that fit the team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And even last year, I think there was a way he wanted to play, but then he realised actually, for the sake of squad balance, I really need to be employing wing backs here. I need to be using Victor Moses in a position that we'd never seen him before prior to that. Marcus Alonso had, and I think was comfortable because of that. But it gave them, as we talked about at numerous points last year, a balance in the difference because 
Moses was a fantastic runner. He could engage the the, the opposition defence. He could provide an overload really easily. Alonso had the, the craft and, and quality to produce dangerous set pieces, free kicks, crosses, etc., etc. And yet, at the same time, he also jettisoned Diego Costa very quickly with, I would say, very little care, very little compassion. And whether he... Uh, agreed with it or not I once had an argument with a coach um, who was taking care of some some young kids and I said you have to realise whether you think they're watching or not you're setting an example and I think that's something that is maybe lost in 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 the discourse there. Do, do you, I mean, it, I do find it interesting and you and I are sort of having surface discussions about football management from day to day anyway, but how, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm, I don't know, since I've taken up a new job, taken up a new position, I've had a lot of people who have gone, you should, you should go to this management conference, you should go and you should hear this guy speak. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, you, when you get to a certain point in your career, you're interested in leading people. You're interested in how, not for your own ego sense, but but how you can influence, uh, you know, something to within a business to, to make it better. Do you know what I mean? And so... Uh, what I also realized was, though, there are a lot of people who serve their own ends by how they see people should be managed. And um, do you ever think there's a slightly sort of prescriptive idea? And that's why managers want to sign very specific players and why Conte took fucking Jacarini to a tournament ahead of another player who was maybe in sensational form at that time. And why, uh, when we're busy criticizing a manager about, you know, he only played this guy. It should be a meritocracy or whatever. When we pick him for an international team, that's bullshit because we don't know what his selection process is. And the same sort of goes for Conte, and the same goes for what you know. There maybe also the revival of Conte. I remember thinking, you know, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. Greatest weakness. That passion is something which is also very easy when you're not in the middle of it to mock. That's something that's very easy to go. Oh, this guy's a bit of a loser, isn't he? I don't really think he gets it. Do you know, you know, he doesn't. He's not as cool or you know, outwardly um, whatever as Mourinho is. You know, Mourinho didn't give a fuck when actually Mourinho cares hugely, but just manages to mask it quite a lot. A lot of well, points think, in there to unpack. Look, sorry. No, I, I think they're all fantastic, and, and thank you. Mourinho in particular is is a great comparison because. For the longest time, he was held up as, as a, almost a, a cerebral manager, someone that picked apart opponents, someone that that stuck the knife in, and yet, I would say at this precise moment where his career sits, I don't think he's ever really been under this much um, scrutiny and questioning. I think you can see the first cracks and the first chips of pain when he's at at, at Inter and he starts having a go at at. Rand- and then at Real Madrid where, again, he, he's sort of outplayed by Barcelona a little bit. Um, but I think you then move to Chelsea, he goes back home, there's a comfort there, he wins the league. But then in that season again, it's that same ugly thing that rears its head. And and you're left questioning if you know he's someone not too similar to, to Bella Gutman who can't really last the course because of his methods. And I, I do think it leads us to a wider discussion, perhaps, that these figurehead type coaches, we look at the Wenger, the, the Sir Alex Ferguson type dynasty, whether that is, is perhaps phasing itself out of the game and whether it is a dying art, because the the demands that a lot of coaches put on, the, the current, what I would consider the zeitgeist of being very intense, very demanding, expecting loyalty amongst amongst the top priorities that's very difficult to sustain for a long time especially if you're not winning and I think the, the this competitive nature at that top level whether it's the Premier League or whether it's the Champions League either we haven't had a lot of new winners in inverted commas of the Champions League over the last 20 years I think Chelsea and maybe Porto since the turn of the millennium are the two teams that have 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 won the Champions League and that's been their first European crown. Porto might run, I'm 90% sure that Chelsea were, that was their first European crown. Other than that, really, it's a very established order of things. Now, you can be patient 
and say, well, it will come around eventually. But I don't think players have that patience either. I think they're conscious of how short their career is, how disposable clubs have become with top talent, how willing they are to invest one minute, sell the next. And and for that reason, I think it's it's not about uh, a diminished loyalty or anything like that. I think it's a game where people have become a lot less patient towards things. And, and for that reason, it means that it's it's very difficult for someone to really establish a, a fantastic legacy. You just need to look at, at what's happened to, to Zidane this season and, and how much that team has dropped off and, and the fact that he's under tremendous pressure and yet pulls out a victory against PSG despite playing quite poorly. You know, that's the, that's yeah. the contrast of Real Madrid. Um, I, and I guess let's let's talk about his upcoming challenge against Barcelona because I think it's seen as um, two opposing styles of play. But actually, uh, sorry, this is Chelsea versus uh, Barcelona here in the Champions League. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Conte. Um, it, talk to me a little bit about the, t- the tactical opposition of those two. Of Conte and... Uh, of, of this Chelsea side and this Barcelona team? I mean, at this point, I think they are polar opposites because Ernesto Valverde has come in and I think done a very good job, but done it very quietly as well. They're, they're what, 17 points ahead of, of Real Madrid, who was sitting fourth. I think they're going to comfortably win the Liga personally. They haven't been huge goal scorers at the start of 2018. I think. You know, it's been a lot of two nil wins, which you could argue is perhaps a slight drop off from their own usual high standard. But it's not something that's being actively talked about, and I think that's a sign of the appreciation that he is garnering as as his as his role of, as Barcelona manager. Because, like I said, they, they've seen the struggle, they've seen the the drop off, if you will, um, and I think. The bizarrest thing for me about Conte is that last season he appeared to have the answers, at least tactically. Whether you think he was a great person or, or you know, needlessly callous with Diego Costa or whatever, tactically he had the right ideas from start to finish. He doesn't seem that pragmatic this time around. He doesn't seem that comfortable with change. I think the, their struggles are best uh, encapsulated by Bakayoko and, and this £40 million midfielder that much like Chelsea looked a lot better last season than he has this. And it, it just looks jarring. It doesn't fit well. And and for me, it it, it looks like a club that is not well organised at the minute, Chelsea. Now, I don't know the structure of Barcelona to say, well, they clearly are. Because I think, look, they sold Neymar and, and I'm sure you could dig up pieces uh, announcing the death of, of Barcelona as a consequence of that deal. But actually, it hasn't really killed them that much. Um, I don't, at least I don't think it has it, it's, it's still got them top of La Liga it's still got them I would say with a good shout of, of taking the Champions League as well which is, is kind of their their two go-to achievements or their go-to goals if you will for a season Yeah I mean I'd, I guess I just feel a bit split on Barcelona and I've always been a little bit split on Barcelona pre-Coutinho in the first place anyway pre that interest uh, that came from them and in many ways, I feel like Liverpool have very quickly forgotten about Coutinho uh, in the past few weeks, at least. Um, it, it's it's an interesting one because uh, do you think that they're almost achieving just in spite of some of the management that's gone on at Barcelona more recently in the same way that Chelsea, not maybe in spite of Abramovich, but uh, in spite of some of the ways that the or the ways that's been perceived as being negative and over the past few years it's constantly sacking managers the constant turnover it's they've sort of fallen upon something even if it wasn't what they meant um, I, th- I think that's an, an interesting point and then certainly there's a huge discord between what Chelsea aim to do from a from a boardroom level and what they actually do on a pitch level because I think if they were in keeping with what they're supposedly trying to do, I don't think Nathaniel Schalaber would have been allowed to leave. I don't think Ruben Loftus-Cheek would have been allowed to leave. Same applies to Tammy Abraham. Now, there is there are clearly uh, one or two youngsters that have been given opportunities. Ethan Amper, who springs to mind as being the most consistent one. 
But I would argue Ampadu is probably being where he needs to be. And I, th- I, th- I think at the the same time, um, it it it's a, a situation that has brought them success. So, so you're ultimately left saying, well, if it if it's brought success, as as you know, to draw from a another Italian uh, philosopher Machiavelli, if the ends justify the means, is there anything there that can truly be criticised? Well, I mean, I guess I guess it can be criticised if they sort of seen themselves sitting with the likes of Barcelona. Are they, do they really sit in that sort of pantheon of top European teams in the way? Do, I mean, do, maybe financially, maybe uh, in terms of competition, some of them do. But I mean, I guess uh, some people would say that they still don't have that, that status, despite this being what most people now call a classic tie. And Chelsea have very much sort of taken part in some of those classic ties, which have helped them get at least some more status in the European scale, at least. Yeah, I think, look, that's a very fair point, is that the the European Cup that they did win, which I think was so central to kind of announcing them on that stage or building that platform for them to to not be that club that, you know, what is, the, what is it, the terrorist song calls, we ain't got no history, that type of thing. I think that was very central to their, their perceived ideology or how they wanted to be perceived. But the... The truth of the matter is, is that the the Champions League was in 2012. So you're looking at, at six years um, since that. That is quite a while ago, and yet, have they really made a, a strong dent on the competition since? I'm trying to think of, of any real kind of, um, you know, run that they that they went on in that period where. You know that they were close to a final or something like that. There, there was a, I think, a semi-final in 2013, 2014, but it's been round of 16 or group stages, um, and it's, it's, it's not been built on. I think that's the key, and so it starts to look less, as you, as I think you alluded to, less like it was planned and more like it was stumbled upon. Yeah, that's all the issue. Um, I mean, it, it's not an issue which. I'm trying to catch anyone on. I, I guess it's just sort of a an observation uh, and partly also about what's going on at austerity Chelsea as it seems to have been branded at this point. And is that good branding? Um, you know, do you want austerity to be uh, the thing that's um, uh, connected with your brand? Uh, a team that have sort of been through their, their own version of austerity, though it's not the sort of conservative austerity with small C that we are used to um, thinking about in football is Spurs, um, and I always find it unusual when people sort of sort of call massive fees and uh, brilliantly high wages austere. Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, Spurs, Chris, because obviously it's an interesting side with uh, Pochettino still building, uh, getting the best out of returning injured uh, players, uh, and obviously also. Uh, beginning to make a bit more of a narrative outside of, you know, just them being the plucky underdogs. It's almost a sort of a, uh, it's, it's, in fact, it's very much an aspirational story that I think a lot of people look up to now at Spurs, where they see, you know, these these guys are doing it for very reasonable wages or much more reasonable in, in uh, relative terms. Um, uh, but then they're also, I guess the, the, the point that you slightly want to talk about was the, some of the sacrifices that they make uh, in a competition sense in the Cups? Yeah, because I think the, the greatest criticism that's been levelled at Pochettino and, and as a consequence Tottenham is their lack of trophies, their lack of winning. And the, you know how can Pochettino be a world-class manager if he's not won anything? And here we are looking at a Tottenham side that the, the last two rounds of the FA Cup now They've struggled to to put away lower league opposition, Newport County, um, and now Rochdale. Both granted away ties, both Harry Kane started on the bench, both times he, he came on and, and had some kind of, of impact. And it, it makes me think, well, you know, the, there'll be a lot of people taking issue with Pochettino for doing that. But then you look at the event as a result at the same time and say, well, actually, I actually think he's got his priorities right on this one because I think if he did win the League Cup, I don't think it would appease his critics because I, you know, 
try and recall the last five winners of the League Cup. I think it's a much more difficult task than the last five winners of the Champions League. And and while a domestic cup is nice, you know, it, it perhaps appeases some. I almost think Pochettino's got his eyes on a bigger prize, which I don't think that you know garners him credit or criticism by any stretch. But I do think it shows that actually for teams with a bit of ambition, for teams that want to do something, it makes so much more sense to to prioritise European competition if you're playing in it over the domestic competition because I don't know what winning a domestic trophy actually achieves for a team in the top six that aspires to be a a big club in inverted commas. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, what do you, what do you consider that... I guess, I guess, uh, part of the problem is that it's actually the unachievable side. It's almost like the the King Arthur side of football. Um, uh, do you know what I mean? It, like the that it's an unattainable side. I was watching a TV show the other night that sort of was talking about how King Arthur, throughout the ages, dependent upon what the country maybe feels it needs in terms of leadership and those sort of things. The stories about him change. And the stories that are told about him changed. Was he a fair leader? Was he a leader who needed to lead through times of austerity? Was he a leader who needed this and needed that? Um, is, is it the same in the Premier League where it's sort of like, well, to be at this top table, you need to be this sort of team? Because a few years ago, Spurs obviously aspired. Um, and now I feel like we've almost completely changed that. That, that 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 idea of Spurs. Spurs are not the same team they were a few years ago. No, no, not at all. I think I think there was a point where just qualifying for the Champions League was seen as a a big achievement for them. Whereas now it's actually more a case of they have to make some form of impact in the the latter stages. And and you know even for example the Juventus game, if they emerge victorious from that that's a sizable scalp and yet it will come with the caveat that yeah it means nothing if you don't win something and so I think for them it almost goes back to that that Chelsea analogy as much as I know Spurs fans will hate to be compared to Chelsea and, and vice versa but I think they're in a position where they're trying to establish themselves albeit through very different recruitment strategies and it's it's about accepting that you always operate with a short blanket in so much as you can't cover everything. You can't put out a strong team in the FA Cup and and all this. And the days of the, the treble-winning Man United side in 99 going out and attacking each game just just on its on the fact that it's the next game and not whether it's a Champions League semi-final or a fourth-round replay with uh, a team from the lower leagues, that's really not achievable or, or realistic in, in today's game okay yeah I mean it certainly is an interesting one I mean how do you feel about the way that Pochettino is managing things at the moment do you because he's definitely returning certain players from uh, tricky times I think um, and also uh, sort of trying to give the right people minutes yeah I mean I mean that's that's the other thing like like with I think with a lot of clubs, whether it's it's Man United, Man City, Tottenham, Chelsea, um, they're all trying to produce in-house. Now the reasons are numerous. I think financially it's the most cost-effective. There are obviously ancillary benefits from from having one of your own as Tottenham know with with Harry Kane. Um, but then you know how, how do you realistically do that? Because it goes back to the trust element again that we talked about because you have to put them in positions where a more experienced player may handle the situation better and you can't guarantee the response you're going to get. Um, someone like Marcus Edwards, for example, who goes out to, to Norwich City on loan, maybe a decade ago he plays in the first team because of the level Tottenham are at. Now, it may sound callous to say they don't have space for passengers, but I don't think they have space for mistakes. And and that, for me, is one of the more difficult um aspects for a big club in the Premier League is finding the the space with which to develop a player and trust them because I think someone like Monaco make it look so easy but I really don't think it's as as black and white or in their case red and white as, as it seems 
uh, very nicely done. And it's whether some teams do step into the red, I think, more recently, um, which has been a bit of an issue, uh, certainly with the likes of uh, Spurs and Chelsea. It was interesting the other day I was having a chat about the Spurs' new stadium, uh, how things are going to change when they do go to the new stadium and how they feel it could open up a, a whole new... Uh, world for this team and how it will take them to the next level. Do you think that's what Poch is waiting for? Um, no, I, I, th- I think it's something that he sees as uh, more of a new CD player than a new engine, personally. I, I don't think he... I think it, it, it's a nice thing to have, of course. It, it gives them a, a certain feel, maybe. But I think he knows that realistically a, a stadium will not be the difference maker for, for Tottenham. It'll be what they do on the training pitch and, and how they prepare their their young talents to, to transition into that first team squad. It's been interesting to have you on the podcast, Chris. Um, do you, anywhere that people can go read your stuff? Not this week. All, all quiet on the Western Front. Mm, interesting uh, well if you want to go follow Chris on Twitter and you want to go follow the rest of the guys the links are in the description below go take a look at those um, it certainly is interesting at the moment to uh, see all the different work that we're putting out there um, if you want to go take a look at the new channel that's just been set up by a couple of members of this and definitely is going to have contributions in the future from everyone involved in this project uh, go take a look at XO it used to be the True Geordie's second channel um but go take a look at that. It certainly is uh, worth a look, even if maybe you're interested in more front three side of things rather than the sort of laddish side of football that um, some people um, seem to want at the moment. Um, it's been good to have you, Chris. Go take a look at us on the Thursday when we're going to be doing the Q and A. We'll see you guys later. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.